Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. The prosecutor tried to say she, like, came up behind him and surprised him, like, slit his neck from behind, something crazy like that. And then he turned around and loved her too much to put his hands on her. So basically, he just let my mom stab him to death, which to me is ridiculous. It's just fucking ridiculous. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and farther away from Billy Jensen. And I am officially ready for this distance podcasting to be over. But we're going to jump right into the day because I think that the Jodi Arias series was next level. And we have an incredible case to give to you today. And we want to jump right in. Yes. So we wanted to hit you with one banger after the next. Bangers, bangers, bangers. Billy, what day is it? Well, I want to make Jack cry because it's National Rescue Dog Day. <gasps> it is? Yes. Oh, it's just my dream to rescue a special yes. needs Frenchie dog. One day, one day. Thanks for that day, Billy. Yes. It, it is also International Clinical Trials Day, which is more important seemingly now than ever. Wow. These are yeah. pretty relevant days. Mm-hmm. I want to adopt a fox, if anybody cares. <laughs> no, Alexis has um, developed a new obsession with foxes and fo- fox rescues that they I laugh, also jumped like, on board. They laugh like humans. They're, they're the most interesting animals. They're like raccoon dog hybrids that look like humans and have just deepness in their eyes. Mm-hmm. This fo- fox rescue that you um, like brought me on to, they also rescued chinchillas that I have seen pop up. Pop up it's a great rescue. I can't speak today. Pop up and on the their fox, page. And the fox and the cats get along. It's like they're living this, like, it's like they're in a storybook. It's, it's, yeah, it's but what about the What about the hounds and the There fox? aren't any hounds there, Billy. Yeah, well, maybe there should be. <laughs> okay, I'll let them know. <laughs> okay. Mm. Well, <laughs> that's enough of that. So let's turn on the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Today's episode is about more than a case that simply stole the headlines. 
more than a first degree sharing her story. Today, what we're sharing with you is a story of a daughter's worst nightmare. And there are a few things more painful to imagine in the world than the brutal and vicious murder of your father. But there are, in fact, worse things. Worse would be if you knew the killer was still out there. And worse still would be if your own mother was wrongly convicted for killing him. The Melgar family lived in Houston, Texas. There was Jim, Sandra, who everyone called Sandy, and then their daughter, Liz. Jim had been born in Guatemala and immigrated into the United States when he was a baby. His family ultimately moved to Houston, Texas, and he was raised there, and in high school he met the love of his life and his future wife, Sandra. Shortly after high school, the couple got married, and they supported each other as they pursued their respective careers. Jim was fascinated by internet technology and Sandy by nursing. Eventually, the family joined the Jehovah's Witness faith, and they started a family and had their daughter, Liz. By 2012, Liz was an adult. She was living in Europe with her husband, and life was just moving according to plan. She was planning on starting a family soon. We, we were living in England, and we had just started to make a move over to Switzerland because my husband and I were looking to move to Texas. We were waiting for his work visa, so we were slowly moving things over. And we had just made it back to England to celebrate Christmas with his family. And since my family are Jehovah's Witnesses and don't have, you know, don't celebrate any holidays, um, but at that around that time, I had also had a miscarriage, and um, I had just gotten out of the hospital. So I woke up at, you know, I slept in. It was probably like ten thirty, eleven. I woke up and I'm, I see all these messages in my on Facebook. And everyone's telling me how much they love me and how they're just, they want to be there for me. And, you know, if I need anything, I'm not to hesitate to ask them, all sorts of things. And so I figured that these things were just connected to the miscarriage. And so the next thing I see is this news story, my timeline, and it's um, the police tape around my family home. You know, my mom is being walked out uh, by the police. My dad's been murdered, and that's about all I know. So in this chaos, Liz starts frantically trying to contact family members. She can't reach anyone, but then she finally gets through to her cousin. She didn't even have much to tell me. She didn't even know where my mother was. She told me that the police had taken her to the hospital because she had had a seizure. And by the time I finished calling all the hospitals in the area, because... I went to the paramedic school that actually services my area. I realized she wasn't at any of the hospitals and started calling the police stations, but nobody knew where she was either. Um, It took a while to finally find her, but I was already heading to the airport and ready to go, you know, by the time I found her. But yeah, it was was very little information and uh, it was all a big haze. We were in a huge rush and it's really weird because I was kind of shocked, but it, it still feels like it's playing in slow motion in my head when I think about that time. Liz finally arrives in Houston, and her cousin and her mom are there to pick her up. And it's at this point that Liz still knows very little about what's actually happened. All she knows for sure is that her dad has been murdered. It was such a relief to me to see that she was okay. You know, she she did have, like, a little bruising around her eye. She had these, like, horrible, like, blue and purple marks around her wrists, up her arms, going towards her forearms, you know. And uh, she had a lump on her head. 
And, but, you know, she was alive, and that was all I could ask for in that moment, you know, is to see her sitting in front of me. And it just kind of felt like, I don't know, I, it felt like a relief at that time, but looking back, now I see that our nightmare was just beginning. And while initially, of course, and unsurprisingly, Liz's mother, Sandy, is in no condition to just answer a barrage of questions about what happened. Liz, of course, is patient. They're all grieving. They're all in shock about losing their father, their husband, and they're sad. They're devastated. But here's slowly what Liz starts to glean about what's happened. Sandy starts to open up about her experience that night. So in order for us to properly lay out the facts for you, you need a little background information. So in the winter of 2012, Jim was a mere five months away from retiring, which was a huge accomplishment to celebrate. And there was another milestone to celebrate that December as well. Liz's parents, Sandy and Jim, were celebrating 32 years of marriage. These two had been together 32 years. They'd been high school sweethearts, which is something extremely rare these days, as we all know. And appropriately, they had a special night planned. The couple had made plans to have dinner at their favorite Mexican restaurant. And when they got home, they headed to their master suite for a dip in their big jacuzzi-style bathtub, which I'm super jealous that they had. And it's at this point, where this night that sounds so lovely, a romantic night for a couple celebrating their anniversary, takes a really terrifying turn. Brace yourselves, because there is a lot to unpack here. So here's how everything went down. So at 4.30 p.m. on the day after Jim and Sandy's anniversary... Jim's brother Herman and his family arrived at the Melgers for a family holiday dinner that they had planned weeks prior. So this would be the 23rd of December, 2012. When Herman, his wife Maria, and their daughters arrived, the front door of the Melgers' home was locked and no one was answering the door when they knocked. Jim and Sandy also weren't answering their phones. So Herman walked around the side of the house. He looked over the fence. He could see um, Jim's like half-done home improvement projects. He had some tarps out. I mean, he was always doing stuff like this and all seemed sort of normal. So, but there was no sign of them in the backyard. So Herman decided to walk through the garage. So the garage door was open. He could see Sandy's silver car parked inside of it. And there was a door into the home in the garage that entered into the laundry room. So the hope here is that it's open. So it was open. He goes inside. He then goes to the front door and lets his family inside, his wife and his daughters. They're all in the house. The house is extremely dark. All the blinds are closed. And suddenly, as they're walking around, sort of feeling out the situation, they hear these muffled sounds. And slowly but surely, they start to realize that they are the muffled screams of Sandy. So they move through the house, and Herman runs to the master bedroom, turns towards the closet, And there he finds a large chair propped under the doorknob of their walk-in closet, which is right off the bathroom. And this chair is jamming the door and keeping it closed. So we've seen this before in movies. You put a chair under a doorknob and it creates the situation where it's very, very hard to open the door. So when he opens the door, he finds a screaming Sandra tied up in a black nightie, her hands and feet bound, and she is just hysterical. So Herman and his wife, Maria, frantically tried to untie Sandy, but the bindings were too tight and they couldn't get them loose at all. They eventually find a pair of scissors and cut her free. Once Sandy was untied, she got up and started calling out for Jim. She was crying out for him. She stumbled into the bedroom and 
turned towards his closet and they could see his feet sticking out of the doorway. Jim was dead. He had a knotted rope loosely wrapped around his chest and telephone cords were tied around his ankles. He was covered in blood with gash marks across his neck and torso. There was blood all over the safe that sat next to him and his feet were tied with a cord from the phone. There was blood all over the walls. And another thing worth mentioning. So when we hear Sandy was in a closet, Jim was in a closet, they had the kind of uh, suite where there's a bathroom and they each had their own sort of master closets. Um, And Sandy was tied up and barricaded in hers. Jim was found with his feet out of his. So when paramedics attempted to render aid to Sandy, she was sobbing. And she was sobbing to the point where she could hardly speak to the woman trying to help her. In the field report written by the first responding paramedic, she noted that, quote, Sandra remained in a state of shock and had periods of crying, and that Sandra, quote, had no sense of time, and last recalls a time of about 1 a.m. this morning. She did not realize that it was evening time and approximately 15 hours had passed. Sandra was disoriented, paralyzed in fear and in sadness at the reality she just lived through. So that's what the paramedics first observed when they got there. But then the police arrived. And here's some of what they saw when they entered the home. So they noted that dresser drawers in the bedroom and in the guest rooms of the home were pulled out and rifled through. Pill bottles were strewn on the floor. Sandra's purse and wallet had been dumped out on the master bed. And the white comforter on the master bed was dotted and speckled with blood. Chairs and other furniture in the room were bloodied and speckled and splashed with blood as well. And when they entered the bathroom, they could see the tub that they had taken a bath in, Sandra and Jim, and it was partially filled with water. They saw a knife sitting at the bottom of the tub. They saw a white blouse floating in the water, and they saw a green uh, hand towel also floating in the water. And they noted about this, this knife There were matching ones in the kitchen, indicating that this had been taken from their own kitchen drawer. So on the ledge of the bathtub was a bowl of strawberries and then a container of whipped cream, like you get like Cool Whip, something like that. I don't know what brand it was, but it was in the container like that. So when the police approached Jim, his feet were laying outside of the doorway, as we said, off the closet in the master bedroom. We mentioned how his feet were tied, the red rope around his chest. And they noted the safe next to him. And there were smears of blood on the safe. And two small keys to the safe were on the carpet right in front of it. Another thing they noted was that there was a mop and bucket in the Melgar's dining room. And Sandra told the police that she used it to clean up after their family's dogs. And they had four dogs, two of which were puppies. So she just basically left this thing out because accidents were happening so frequently, which, which makes sense. All right. So that's a lot, a lot of information. So what the hell happened? The police had a lot of questions and they were hoping that Sandy could help them piece all these different questions together. Sandy complained about this bump on her head, but she ended up declining to be transported to the hospital to receive any additional medical attention for it. Instead, she went to the police headquarters to give a recorded statement to the investigators. Once they arrived, pictures of Sandra's body were taken. There were bruises all over her arms. There didn't appear to be any blood on her. They took swabs from underneath Sandra's fingernails to test for DNA, and then she walked investigators through everything that she could remember from the night. Sandy went over their anniversary plans. 
She and Jim got home, and they drew a bath in the master bath jacuzzi, and they took a bath together for a few hours. They talked about the future and everything they were excited about, trips, a beach house they wanted to buy after Jim's retirement, all of that. They finished in the bath, and it was noted that they for sure had sex. That's what Sandy said. And Sandy went into her closet, sat down, and started putting lotion on her legs. It was at that time that they heard dogs barking, which is their dogs. Jim grabbed a towel and put on Sandy's slippers, and he, and he walked like, out. He half put them on. You know how like a man will put on mm-hmm. a girl's smaller shoes that you can just slip on. So clearly, he was intending to come right back. It's like let me just go over here to see what's up. Yeah. And Sandy said that was the last time she ever saw Jim alive. The next thing she remembered were barking dogs again, only now it was daylight. And Sandy had no idea what time it was. She was in terrible pain. She tried to roll over, but she had a double hip replacement and couldn't muster the strength to roll herself over. She started looking around to make sense of where she was. She was in her closet. Her hands were bound. Her feet were tied. She was wearing the same black satin nightgown that she was wearing the night before. Right. And when Sandy awoke, she had no idea what time it was. She had no idea who could possibly hear her if she started yelling, but screaming was the only option. And eventually, after she had screamed for what seemed like forever, she did hear voices. She started screaming louder. And that's when she heard the voice of her brother-in-law, Herman, who ended up ultimately freeing her. As for everything that happened between the time Jim walked out to go check on the dogs in the night before to when she woke up the next morning, Sandy couldn't remember anything that had transpired. There are probably many questions swirling around in your heads right now. First is, who would do this to this nice family and why? But there are probably some of you, having listened to a lot of true crime, that might be wondering if it really is possible for Sandra to have no recollection of what happened. Right. And if you think that Sandra's memory loss sounds weird to you, it's really not. There are so many different explanations for this type of memory loss. The first is the shock and the trauma from this experience itself. So humans have developed memory loss or psychogenic amnesia as this defense mechanism and survival skill to protect themselves from intense psychological damage. A person may suppress these traumatic memories until they're mentally ready to handle them. And for some people, this may never happen at all. And in addition to the trauma and shock of the night itself, we told you about the grand mal seizures that Sandra suffered from. These seizures interfere with the input of information in the brain and therefore interfere with the memory and can cause memory loss. After a seizure, it's extremely common to experience confusion and fogginess as new memory traces are not being laid down in the brain as they normally are. And also, Sandra's seizures led to a loss of consciousness and violent convulsions. They had gotten so bad that Sandra had to stop working as a nurse, which is a career that she was really happy to be in. And when she has a seizure, it would be common for her to sleep for a long, long time afterwards and wake up really confused and in a lot of pain. I remember being a little kid and seeing my mom have a seizure, and I remember... um, you know, being taught what to do and who to call and how to call those people. And, you know, I did CPR training at the age of nine and I learned, started learning how to drive a car in case, you know, something happened and I had to take over or something while she was driving. 
And there were times where she couldn't even think straight. She wouldn't know where, you know, what common objects we use every day are. You know, when she has a seizure, when she has a seizure, she's out of it for a good 24 hours. She can sleep that entire time. Um, and she's just trying to recover from the, the seizure alone. Well, and this makes sense, given that she slept essentially until 4 p.m. the next day. That's And, and had no idea happened, what day it was. Exactly. If it happened, and, and you know, we saw and heard what the paramedic said in her field notes. This woman has no idea what time it is, what day it was. She had no idea it's the next day. And I know we've all had that where we accidentally take a nap and you're not sure if you woke up the next day or if it's nighttime. <laughs> it's yeah. it's one of those. It, it's, it can be super disorienting. And I imagine having a seizure, it's such a stress on your brain that, of course, you sleep. Um, I'm sure it takes a lot out of you and your brain probably does that to protect you in a way too. So... The police pressed Sandy about everything, her marriage, her religion, everything, affairs, what could be going on between them. They wanted to know every single thing. And throughout the questioning, she started to notice that their, their probings slowly transformed into a tone that seemed accusatory. And she's wondering to herself, do they actually think that I did this? The investigators then told Sandy point blank that her story was not adding up. They asked her to explain why she had bruising on both of her upper arms. And to this, Sandy offered several possible explanations. She said that she bruises really easily for reasons related to her chronic illness. Medication she takes can make her bruise. And her physical mobility was limited due to her arthritis. And bruising can happen for a number of reasons. I mean, I'm healthy and I'm covered with bruises 90% of the time because I'm clumsy and malnourished. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. She also suggested that some of the bruising may have been caused earlier that night when she tried to get out of the tub to use the bathroom and Jim grabbed her arm to prevent her from slipping. So sometimes we have these bruises, all of us, people ask where you got it and you just don't really know. And that seems to be what's happening here. When asked about their relationship, Sandy said that she and Jim had a great marriage, that there was never any abuse or anything. And they interrogated her for three hours. She was freezing inside the room. She had a massive headache. Just remember the ordeal that she had just been put through. And she's likely in a great deal of pain, both physically and obviously emotionally. And like we said, Sandy was interviewed and interrogated essentially for three hours on the very same day, same evening rather, that she was freed from her closet. The same day she found out that her husband had been murdered. And here's a portion of that interrogation. Well, isn't it ironic that you could you, you black out at exact time when he's getting stabbed and bludgeoned? I don't have an answer for you. Multiple times like that. Dying, screaming oh for help. Oh my gosh. Just, I don't you know what? I don't understand that. that that's ironic to me. It's a lot of blood that he lost. And then whatever he encountered, he encountered them before you did, before they came and knocked you out. That's why I think there was ample opportunity for you to hear something and nothing. And you're saying nothing. I mean, I don't. you could have had an army tank running in that bathroom and you'd hear that. That's what I don't understand. Could you hear him? No, I couldn't hear him. Could you hear him yelling for help? No. Could you hear him screaming? 
I didn't hear anything. I mean, he was in pain. We know that. He suffered a lot. I need you to help me. I need you to help me. I need you to help me on this. Can you help me? I need you to help me. Sandra, can you help me? I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. I need help, Sandra. Please help me. Screaming after screaming after screaming, he's in pain. I need help. Help me, Sandra. Help me. Tell me, your husband's a nice guy. He went through a lot of pain. Help me. Sandra, I need help. Please help me, Sandra. Sandra, help me. Sandra, I need help. I didn't I hear help. anything. Just stop already. I need help, Sandra. I need help. Help me. That's it. That's it. I, I, I need a lawyer. I, I'm not talking anymore because you guys are just trying to torture me here. I'm not torturing you. I'm asking for help. Do you love your husband? Yes, I love my husband. Do you care about him? Yes. Do you want us to finally kill him? Of course. Did you kill your husband? No, I didn't. Did you have anything to do with your husband's death? No. Now, if you're anything like me, when you listen to the audio, this interrogation evokes a lot of feelings. Um, and it resonates in some way, whether you're the true crime buff and you're thinking about what tactics the detectives are using, or you're empathizing with Sandra, somebody traumatized, somebody who is sitting there and listening while a detective is essentially trying to mock what her husband could have been saying as he's suffering. And it's infuriating. It's curious. And of course, there's a lot of unanswered questions still at this point in this case, but what we can very clearly see here is that this was mere hours after Sandra was pulled from this closet. They are already convinced that Sandra is the culprit. And it seems like the police were getting really, really angry at her. She's clear on some things. She's not on other things. And they're not doctors, they're detectives. And clearly we've gone over the fact that it's very possible given her medical conditions that she would not be able to remember everything, particularly had she suffered a seizure. So they're frustrated, but they don't understand the full picture at this point. But then they ask her an interesting question that sometimes can make people seem guilty, but I think it makes them smart. They asked if she'd take a polygraph and she declined. Literally taking a polygraph is never in your best interest. If you pass it, they can't use it in court, 
to exonerate you, so it's pointless. And if you fail it, you just look super, super guilty, and they'll start looking at you even harder and trying to make evidence exist that isn't even there. So if you're ever asked to take a polygraph, just say no. It's what any defense lawyer would tell you to do. It cannot help you. Okay, sorry, Billy. What were you saying? One of the investigators said to her, quote, we're going to find out everything about you. We're going to find out everything about your husband. We're going to talk to everybody in your neighborhood. We're going to talk to everybody that you're related to. We're going to learn everything, end quote. And Sandy responded, quote, that'll help you look somewhere else too, because it wasn't me, end quote. By the end of the interrogation, the detective's frustration at Sandra's lack of memory was clear. So when investigators asked Sandra what she thought had happened to Jim, she said that she believed that it was a home invasion and it had turned violent for whatever reason she wasn't sure. Because she and Jim had absolutely no known enemies that she could really think of at all. She racked her brain trying to think of anything that could have led to this whole situation. She mentioned that Jim had been driving slowly the night before and he had gotten into this tense situation with a guy that was tailgating them on their way home. And then also she and Jim owned rental properties and there was bad blood with one of the tenants, but she didn't truly think that that tenant had any reason to take things this far. She was remorseful about not being able to remember anything because of course she wanted the person responsible to pay for the crime. So at the, you know, at the time to us, it had to have just been a, a break and gone wrong. And I couldn't understand why my dad would have done anything so cavalier as to try, you know, maybe fight these people, or I don't know what, and then, you know, got killed. Because my dad, my dad was from a third world country, you know. He also grew up um, in Guatemala, so there was a civil war going on when he was younger. And he always told me that if anybody ever tried to come at me for anything, if I ever got held up or mugged or anything, just give them whatever they want. Nothing matters because everything can be replaced except for your own life. We cannot replace you. So to me, it was always so strange that he would do something over his possessions, right? That he would defend them. And that's when I realized that it had nothing to do with that. He he probably thought they were hurting my mom or thought something had happened to her when they hit her over the head and it induced a seizure or something like that. And then and then he tried to do something. But I think it wasn't until he, re- he thought that maybe their lives are in danger. But other than that, that's all I can come up with because... I don't know who would want to hurt them. I just think that somebody got greedy. I think this was probably a a drug addict looking for his next fix. Sandy's being questioned in an interrogation room. But meanwhile, the crime scene is being processed. So the forensic techs are going over everything. And according to court documents, quote, when the first responders arrived, they did not encounter the traditional hallmarks of a home invasion or burglary. There were no signs of forced entry. All of the doors and windows were intact. This thing about there being no forced entry is interesting. So there's a couple things I want to talk about here. And this is something they kind of hang their hats on. Um, First of all, if Herman, Jim's brother, was able to enter so easily through the garage, presumably an intruder could have as well. And not only that, so there are a lot of crime scene photos available online. And they say there's no forced entry. But if you... Look at the back door of this home. In these photos, it looks like this door was pried open, personally. Um, So I don't know where they get this. But also, 
many, many, many suburban areas, people leave side doors open. People leave windows in. It's possible to get in and out of a house without leaving like a destructive, obvious sign that you broke in. But it's neither here nor there. But court documents also note that no personal property appeared to be missing. Valuables were untouched and in plain view, and dresser drawers were only slightly opened, their contents undisturbed. But according to Liz, Jim and Sandy's daughter, things were stolen from the home. Many things. Many, many, many things. And she pointed all of that out, and she was not listened to. So I called the police, and I asked if they wanted to speak to me because, I mean... I I used to be a really big true crime fan and, you know, I knew kind of what, you know, how everything played out when something like this happened, or at least I thought I did. And then they asked me to go to the home, walk through it, and make a list of any items that I thought were missing. So I got dressed and after they left, and I went to the house to do just that. And when I get there... That the whole room had already been taken apart where um, where everything had happened and it had been cleaned and everything. So all of that was in the living room. I mean, everything was a mess. It was really hard to tell what had happened there. So I'm looking around and I go into the garage and I automatically notice several of his tools are missing, the larger tools that he had. My dad really liked woodworking and so he had, you know, a lot of really nice tools to do that with. But nothing was in there. So I went to his filing cabinet because he took meticulous note of everything. And I'm so thankful that for that because that made handling all of this so much easier. Anyway, I went back there and I grabbed the manuals for the tools I thought were missing. And I'm making note of some other things. And I'm in the garage and I see this black and green backpack on the floor. And so I walk up to it and I see that it's got my mom's Xbox in it. And I call them and I tell them, you know, there's a bag here that has stuff in it. Uh, I don't think my parents would have left it here. And I see two other bags and they're both still on the shelves and one on the floor of the garage. And they're still halfway filled with random bits and bobs from the garage. And the police tell me that my dad probably did that to transport his tools somewhere. Or that he probably got rid of the tools because... They don't see where they could fit in the garage. Okay, well, they were here before. <laughs> These manuals, am I just making this up? You know, what? why did you ask me to do this? Anyway, so they come, they get the, they only get one of the backpacks. They, they decided the other two were my dad's doing for whatever reason. They take the one backpack, um, they take some pictures of it, whatever, and they leave. And the funny thing about that is they later tried to blame that on me and say, I planted that there to make them look incompetent or to help my mom, however that might help her. That's how, that's basically how it started. And once that started happening, I just knew that this wasn't, this wasn't going to be, you know, a simple shut and close case. They weren't actually going to try to do any work. You know, this was for show and they had figured out who they wanted to pin it on and how their job was going to be made easy. And they just went with that. Meanwhile, Jim's autopsy had been conducted. He had been stabbed a staggering 31 times to his hands and chest, all to the front of his body, none on the backside of his body. There was a particularly deep laceration to an artery near his right thumb, which had nearly come off during the confrontation. 
And that was what likely caused a lot of the blood spatter in the closet where Jim was found. So in talking to Liz, I actually learned that all the reporting says that it was 31 stab wounds, but she clarified that actually he'd only been truly stabbed seven times. And the rest of the lacerations were defensive wounds and they were uh, more shallow cuts. There were no ligature marks or hemorrhages around Jim's ankles where the telephone cords had been tied. So while all this is happening, news of what had happened at the house of the Melgars started to spread. And it was hard to miss the fact that something big was happening in their neighborhood. The cul-de-sac where their home was had been cordoned off. And friends and neighbors gathered and traded pieces of information that they'd been able to glean from other neighbors. It was like a game of telephone. Most were under the impression that a deadly home invasion had occurred at their house. So those in the same neighborhood were fearful that this would might happen to them as well. So they installed security cameras and they got floodlights and they're taking all these extra precautions at every turn they could. Right. And so the police, of course, as they threatened to do in interrogation, they were going to speak to neighbors. They were going to speak to every family member. They were going to speak to everybody who Sandra and Jim knew. So what they heard was that the Melgers were quiet. They kept to themselves. They had regular comings and goings. Their lives presented nothing out of the ordinary at a glance. They also asked neighbors if they had seen or heard anything odd on the night the murder had occurred. And one neighbor said he was in his garage working on a project until 1 a.m. and never heard a sound. And this is worth discussing because forget who did it. It did happen. Forget who did it, right? Somebody did it. Jim didn't hurt himself. But... 1 a.m. is when it would have happened, and this neighbor heard nothing. So this also proves nothing. You know, I just think it's odd that you wouldn't have heard anything. But yeah, it kind of it proves nothing either way. Like if they're trying to say it was her, if it was a home invasion, there was that. That's a whole leads to nothing. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's True Accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. 
So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to Aloe Moves com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on the first degree. And when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV. And that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. And the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. So as the investigation is in this information-seeking phase, of course they want to know about Sandy and Jim's relationship. What kind of relationship did they have? You know, when I was growing up, I didn't see a lot of PDA. My dad wasn't like that, you know. He didn't he didn't show that much, at least not around me. But then after all of this happened and I started hearing her friends talk about her relationship to each other, even when they didn't know that I was around, like that I could hear what they were saying, I didn't realize how much of a romantic my dad was. And it makes me ache even more for my mom that she lost that. And I just, I don't know, I'm going to get all emotional here, but yeah, she was really lucky. She really was, and so was he. So after the scene was processed for evidence, things were tested, and here's the culmination of what they found. There was no physical evidence directly implicating or connecting Sandy to the murder of her husband. There was none of Jim's blood on Sandy. There was no blood on Sandy's clothes. Jim's DNA wasn't under Sandy's fingernails, and Sandy's DNA wasn't under Jim's. In addition, quote, according to court documents, there was no evidence of blood transfer associated with removing bloody clothing or gloves. 
chemical processing established, there was no attempt by Sandy to clean the sinks, shower, or jacuzzi, according to court documents. Because that's we're hoping that's what they did. They checked the drains and all that. But there was DNA found at the scene that didn't match Sandy or Jim. Male and female DNA, not belonging to the Melgers, was found in several key areas. There was also unknown male DNA on the drawer handles in the master bedroom. It seems as though this evidence was completely ignored just because it didn't fit the police narrative. So it really seems like from the moment the police had Sandy in the interrogation room, they focused their attention and investigation squarely on her. But there were other leads that could have been looked into at least. A suspect with a history of violence, drug charges, and robbery was reported to the police by one of the local news crews as behaving strangely at the crime scene that evening. Right, so and police, we know that people who do things like this do like to like hover around the crime to see the aftermath. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, something re- worth revisit into. the crime scene. Right. right. So the police do investigate the suspect, but they do so by leaving a business card at his door after two failed attempts to reach him. And that's where this investigation ended. That's it. That's all they ever did. And there was also a similar home invasion that was carried out in a surrounding area with a nearly identical MO. And it was never investigated for possible connections at all. Right. And so relatively speaking, there was very little forensic testing carried out on this crime scene. And they basically cherry picked what to test and what to take seriously. For example, blood photographed on the safe handle. And this was a safe found next to Jim's body in his closet. It was not processed or collected, despite the police telling the family the contrary. So the family had seen this safe, had seen these smears of blood on it, and had seen that there were prints on it. And they said to the police over and over, like, you're testing that, right? I mean, these prints, this blood, we should know whose it is. They were appeased. They were placated. Yes, 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 we're testing. But that never actually happened. Um, So the safe was right next to my dad when they... I mean, he kept it in his closet, and he died in his closet. And the keys were usually kept in the, like, keyhole of the safe because it was one of those digital key bags where you would put your code, and then if you got the right code, then you unlock the key, and then you open the safe. But you couldn't just enter the code and not have the key, and you couldn't just use the key without the code. In the pictures, you see it next to my dad, and you see the keys on the floor. So I think somebody probably got sick of waiting or whatever they were doing, whatever set them off. And then once they killed him, they tried to use just the keys at the safe. And when they didn't work, they just threw them on the ground because there's no reason for them to be on the ground like that. Uh, But there was also this swipe of blood on the handle, which I hadn't noticed until I got the safe to my house in, in Texas. And... Uh, that's when I noticed the blood. And so I contacted the police and I was, you know, I asked them if they had processed the safe and they, or if I should, you know, save it for them to come and get it since they missed the backpack as well. <laughs> and they told me they had already processed it. It was no big deal. Just clean the safe. Not a big deal. Okay. So I took a bunch of pictures and I asked my husband to clean it because I don't want to touch it. It was too hard for me to do- deal with. In court, I find out it was never processed. Nobody even bothered, but they just lied to me. 
I I guess so that they wouldn't have to do more work. I don't know. Laziness. Either way, they lied to me and told me I could clean it, which was what happened. So that's gone. Yeah, that was really difficult. And when they asked the CSI why they hadn't processed it, they said it would have just come back to my mom anyway, which is funny since she didn't have any blood or cuts on her. Then there was the male and female DNA, not belonging to the Melgers, found in several key areas. Yet this evidence was ignored as it did not fit the police's narrative. And we want to remind you that Sandy had no cuts, no wounds, no bruising that would come from beating and stabbing a larger adult to death. And in contrast, Jim sustained numerous bruises all over his body, abrasions, and catastrophic damage to organs that would indicate a violent struggle. And this includes fracturing both eye sockets and two other locations of Jim's skull. And a woman of her size, remember, with her health issues, would surely seem incapable of inflicting. I think it's worth discussing this. Just, I think that's the most fascinating part of this case is they've made it a point, and the medical examiner said this, all of his wounds were to the front of his body. And this means, right, to the front of his body. They're on his wrists, they're on his hands, they're on his chest, they're on his face, torso. That means he was not caught off guard. It's not like he has a giant wound to the back, thinking somebody smaller than him could incapacitate him with a sneak attack. He was confronted head on. And the idea that Sandy has no wounds at all, not a speck of blood on her, not a not a scratch on her, is immediately for me, I'm just like, how do you think it's her? Knowing how how sort of frail she is, and I don't mean that in a rude way, but double hip replacement, prosthesis of the hips, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, walks with a cane. It's like, how did she confront hypothetically, if this theory is what we're going with, how did she confront Jim and overpower him and not get a single cut or bruise or scrape on her? You're saying that Sandy did this somehow without getting a single wound. The prosecutor tried to say she like came up behind him and surprised him, like slit his neck from behind, something crazy like that. And then he turned around and loved her too much to put his hands on her. So basically he just let my mom stab him to death which to me is ridiculous. It's just fucking ridiculous. Well, it was interesting too, because I was looking at pictures from the crime scene and there's pictures of her hands and it looks like her hands had just gotten manicured. Like they were- Not a chip on her nails, nothing. They were pristine, way better than my manicures in quarantine right now. Like her hands were, they were spotless. So, I mean, and we've talked about the fact that, you know, stabbing somebody is not easy let alone the amount of times that he was stabbed. So this is not like a delicate crime or even shooting somebody could have been easy enough where it wouldn't create that many, you know, contusions on your own body. So it's just, it's very hard to believe. And as a woman, just, it just seems difficult. It's really leaning more towards that, that they, it's almost as if, these investigators watched a lot of true crime and thought, you know what? The spouse had to do it. Mm-hmm. The fact that they they went, they jumped to that, even though um, you know, you often look for for physical evidence and there's so many things going against this person doing it, not to mention motive, 
we don't have any motive. We don't have any um, the the means. Where are the means of of how she would actually do this physically? The only thing there is opportunity. You know, the police ended up processing the scene, and we don't really know where their head's at because you have to know at this point, Liz and Sandy are just completely in the dark. Sandy's been questioned, interrogated a couple times. Liz has talked to the detectives a couple times, but then they sort of ice them out, and that's it. They're sort of just waiting, like, what is next? Are you going to catch the person who did this? And they expect it to be kept posted, or at least in the loop, in terms of the status of this investigation. But that did not happen. So I'm not sure exactly what was done in that time, but no one was questioned. No files were ever requested from a doctor, from anybody. We were just waiting. We were just in limbo. And I think this case passed through two prosecutors' hands until finally landing on the case or on the the desk of the one that we finally ended up with. But uh, we always got the feeling that this was just kind of being passed on or somebody was waiting for something, but nobody actually wanted to take this to trial because it was such a sad case against my mom. And then a year and a half passed when Liz and Sandy got a surprise. My mom was living with my husband and I, and I had just had my daughter. And I just finished dropping them off at the airport. And I came home and, you know, we have those mailboxes that are at like the front of the neighborhood. So I stopped to check it. And when I opened the door, it had been jammed, filled with flyers from Houston area lawyers that wanted our business for our upcoming trial or for the case against us. And that's when I pulled out my phone and looked up her name on the Harris County District Clerk website and saw that she had been charged with my dad's murder. That's it. That's how we found out. So I went home and I had to wake her up and tell her like 830 in the morning and tell her what, you know, she needed to call the lawyer and she just could not believe it. She was just she just looked dumbfounded. And I felt the same way, but, you know, I was like, come on, we got to get moving. We need to call your lawyer. We need to figure this out. And so she went and turned herself in, never, was never arrested. Nobody ever called her, let her know that they were going to be charging her, that there was an arrest or a warrant out, nothing like that. We, we were all completely shocked, especially her, because, I mean, you would think that when someone is charged with murder, that the police usually come to their house and put them in prison so they don't go murder somebody else. But, I mean, I'm not sure why they didn't do that or even let us know that that was going to be happening. Then, on top of everything else, the lead detective, who was Sean Rubin Carrizal, he was forced to resign two years after the crime due to forging search warrants in a different murder investigation. But when his office was cleared out... Evidence from the Melger case was found untested and incorrectly stored in a filing cabinet in his office. That's crazy. Yeah. Damn. That's crazy. So it's like, again, this is one of the big problems in this case. They cherry-picked what to test. So they would find this third-party DNA that was untested and didn't align with anyone in this household, and that was something they ignored. 
and certain tests and certain evidence, they were like, hey, we'll document this or whatever, but we're going to squirrel it away and pretend it didn't happen. And that, this is an example of that. It's like, I don't know why they were out for Sandy. Whether they were out for her or not, a fair trial means all the cards are on the table. Why are you hiding stuff right. in, a, in a filing cabinet? Two years later, we're finding it. Then the evidence itself is basically unusable. Chain of custody can't be proved. It wasn't stored properly. If it's organic evidence like DNA, skin, touch DNA, who knows? Useless if it's been in a filing cabinet for two years. Sandy's trial began on August 9th of 2017. She was now 57 years old. Their daughter Liz was a testifying witness, so she was not allowed to sit through and observe the entire trial. We were ready to get this over with. We figured by the time we lay our, our case out there, everyone's going to see this for what it is. And they're going to they're gonna come back with her being not guilty because that's the most... <laughs> I mean, to me, it seems obvious, but I guess I had too much faith. The defense opened by criticizing homicide detectives as biased and closed-minded for cutting corners in this investigation. So defense attorney Mac Seacrest said two Harris County Sheriff's detectives interrogated Sandy while she was hysterical after the death of her husband. They then taunted her for not helping Jim as he was being brutally stabbed. Quote, these two detectives made up their minds within two hours of getting to the scene. Then they marshaled the evidence around their theory. The prosecution opened with prosecutor Colleen Barnett telling the jury that Sandra Melger came under suspicion after she gave conflicting accounts of what happened that night as her story, quote unquote, evolved while talking to the police. And the prosecutor said, I don't know that I have motive here, but there's no way anything else happened. She just brutally murdered her husband. So this is the prosecution's theory about how this all played out. They claimed that Sandy had lured Jim into letting her tie up his legs with telephone cord, perhaps as some sort of sex game, and then taken him by surprise using a large kitchen knife to stab him to death. So they're using this cord theory as a means to explain how someone as frail as Sandy was able to overpower and incapacitate him. Because remember, all of his wounds were to the front of Jim's body, this was not a sneak attack from behind. He had all of those defensive wounds on his wrists. Right. So that's not all. The medical examiner testified, and they said that on Jim's ankles, there were no markings that would be expected from these telephone cords if Jim had still been alive and moving, especially considering that he was naked and the cords were directly in contact with his skin. So the Emmy opined that the telephone cords had been tied around Jim's ankles after Jim had already died. So this completely contradicts the prosecution's theory about how Sandy pulled this off. Remember, double hip replacement, rheumatoid arthritis, walking with a cane. If, if these cords did not cause any impressions on his ankles at all, it means if they happened post-mortem, how do they explain how Sandy incapacitated him, how she had the opportunity to attack him with a knife. And the prosecution's theory directly contradicts the ME's findings about these ligatures on Jim's ankles. So the defense challenged the jury to explain how Sandy would have no cuts, no wounds, and no bruising that would come from beating and stabbing a larger adult to death. 
And in contrast, Jim sustained numerous bruises all over his body, abrasions, and catastrophic damage to organs that would indicate a violent struggle. And again, this includes fracturing both eye sockets and two other locations of Jim's skull. It was a lot. And that's that a woman of her size and with her health issues would surely be incapable of inflicting. So as far as the prosecution's theory on motive goes, they alleged, and, and you know, in many, many interviews, Colleen Barnett, the prosecutor, has said, I don't really have motive in this case. So we have to take take that. We have to start there. But what they could muster, and if they had to come up with something, they figured that Sandy, in their theory, wanted a divorce. But she feared being shunned by her fellow Jehovah's Witnesses. So Jehovah's Witnesses, if you don't know, are not allowed to divorce unless the spouse has committed adultery, which Jim had not done. This theory, Liz says, is just completely fabricated, and her parents had truly a wonderful marriage. And when he wasn't at work, he was caring for my mom for whatever she may need. And not only that, but, you know, he was the breadwinner, and he was the one that took care of the home and maintained it. And it was his health insurance that, you know, kept us afloat. Um, you know, we were very close and, and things were great. I mean, he always took care of me and my mom. One time he overheard me tell my boyfriend to shut up or that he was stupid or something like that. You know, we were joking around. But he told me that I shouldn't joke that way because you slowly will start to lose respect and eventually it crosses over into your arguments. And, you know, that's not, it's a very dangerous president to set and it's not something that you even want to entertain. It's better to just completely, you know, to always be respectful, always have respectful conversation. Even if you don't agree with each other, there's no reason to raise your voice or yell. And I still feel miserably at these things in my own relationship. So to see them practice what they preach for 32 years is, you know, I hope that I can continue to have such a strong and healthy marriage like like they had. So Sandy's defense painted a picture of this happily married couple. They were best friends. They were high school sweethearts, as we said. And no one knew the couple to be a couple that would fight. The prosecution then attempted to explain exactly the steps that Sandy took to execute her plan, quote unquote plan. The prosecution proposed that Sandy killed Jim in the master bedroom and then washed herself off in the master bathroom. And they claimed that Sandy left the garage door open on purpose so that she could be quote unquote rescued by her brother-in-law Herman the following day. And that she knew they were coming and this is part of her plan. And she had invited them over this day for this purpose. So while we're on the subject of Herman, who remember is Jim's brother, Sandy's brother-in-law, what do they think? So they would have kind of the most insight as far as the authenticity of Sandy's reaction of finding Sandy tied up. Did they pick up on anything strange when they walked into the house that day? So the family that found my mom and dad that night or that day were my dad's brother, the brother's wife and their daughters. Um, and they have been incredibly supportive. They're always checking up on us. You know, we're here if they need the, if we need them. <clears throat> and they've always been very vocal about their support. 
and reassuring to my mom that, you know, there's no way they could think that she did this. And they just, they want to help in any way they can. Yeah, he was there. He found them. He, he was there before anybody else got there. And I feel like if he felt like something didn't add up, he would say so. And I know my cousins would definitely say so. My dad always emphasized importance on family and trusting each other and, you know, sticking together because nobody else would have your back the way family would. So he was, um, as we found out after he passed away, he was the glue that held the family together. But yeah, it was because of him that we had such a nice and stress-free life. And he, I always, I can still hear him always saying that that's all he ever wanted was for us to have a nice life and have the things he didn't have as a kid. And, you know, he just wanted my mom to be happy. So to be clear, Herman had never doubted his sister-in-law's innocence. And he was there and saw Sandy's organic reaction, and he believes her fully. Okay. Then the subject in court shifted to the robbery aspect of the case. So clearly the prosecution is claiming that this scene has been staged. And they theorize that Sandy staged the crime scene. And as for the appearance of a home invasion, Barnett argued that the drawers were actually neatly arranged that they weren't dumped. But Sandy's defense attorneys clapped back and said that there were many items of value that were removed from the house, as proven by Liz's account as well. And the defense pointed out how Sandy's hands were completely clean. And this is not only of scratches or wounds, but also of clean of blood. And like we said before, she didn't even have as much as a chipped or broken nail. And in response, the prosecution pointed out a cloudy fingernail on Sandy's right hand. And they said that this was proof that she had used cleaning solution to clean up evidence at the scene, which is the biggest reach. Another reach. That is reaching. This cloudy fingernail means she used this cleaning solution, even though they couldn't find evidence of that anywhere else. So now one of the first things and one of the most glaring things about this case that I'm sure many people have taken note of as we've explained the circumstances is that when Sandy was found, there was a chair under the knob keeping her locked in this closet. And this is stuff we see in movies, right? We see chair under a knob. This is how you get locked into a closet or how you get locked into somewhere that doesn't have a a lock on the door. To me, it seems impossible for someone to lock themselves in a closet this way. How do you wedge a chair under a knob of a closet door that you're locked in? Well, the prosecution, of course, I'm sure this is one of the biggest obstacles they had to take on. But they decided they were going to come up with an explanation. So in court, they had an in-court demonstration. And the prosecution showed how Sandy could have hypothetically tied herself up. And they used a video exhibit to demonstrate this. They had an investigator pretending to be Sandy, quote unquote, um, lock himself in the bathroom and wedge a chair under the outside door handle using a pillow sham to do it. The person in this video began by entering the closet and then placing a pillow sham on the bathroom floor with one end of the pillow sham inside the closet and the other end outside the closet under the back two legs of the chair. So if you're picturing this, imagine the space under the door. The pillow sham is halfway in the closet, halfway in the bathroom. The legs of the chair of the 
the back two legs are on the sham, right? Then the person closes the closet door so that only a crack remains open. They extend their hand through the crack and lean the back of the chair under the outside door handle. So the chair was tilted at an angle directly under the knob. And so the two front legs were lifted off the ground. Then the investigator brings his hand back inside the closet, pulls on the end of the pillow sham from under the door. And suddenly this pulling motion drags the chair closer to the frame of the closet. And once the door shuts completely, the chair becomes wedged securely under the handle as though it had been placed there deliberately by someone on the outside of the door. So this recreation, you have to know, and I think this is a fascinating topic in this story and in, in relation to the story, they found the sh- they found a pillowcase in the closet. And uh, that's what inspired this theory, right? So in, and there was a rip on the pillowcase. So uh, Sandra's hands and feet had been bound by like scarves and pieces of cloth and things like that. And they found this ripped pillow sham in the closet with her. And suddenly they derived their theory. Um, and I think this brings up a bigger conversation though, where we saw this in the staircase, right? Where this guy who, who basically came up with these blood evidence experiments, expert witness for the prosecution, right? And his experiments, quote unquote, ended up being the reason why Michael Peterson got a new trial because this whole business of paid or hired expert witnesses is very suspect. And I really do feel like this is one of those situations where we saw this in in the staircase where there's video evidence of them like over and over trying to get the exact result they want. And once they get it, they're all cheering and laugh, like happy because they finally got the exact blood spatter pattern they're trying to achieve. Okay. So here mm-hmm. I feel like the same thing happened. How do we explain? There's these things in the closet. Let's come up with a theory about how she was able to do this. And of course, if you try hard enough, if you're a fucking right. Harry Houdini investigator, <laughs> you're going to be able to figure out how to do it. And it's well, such this- a reach. This really reminds me of like you're when you're explaining this whole thing of like how they're trying to do it. It reminds me of watching like a stupid video on Barstool Sports of somebody making like a long distance beer pong cup where it's like, yeah, Elaborate. you're going to show the one time that you do this crazy thing. But how many times did you try to do it? How many different ways did you try to do it? And how many times did you film it? Like, of course, somebody can do anything if you try hard enough and try Mm -hmm. enough times. So just because you are, there's some wild way to possibly do it with these random things that you found in your closet doesn't mean that the person did it. So many of the theories and evidence in this trial was a reach. So the defense then shifted attention to the mishandling of the evidence, the cops tunnel vision, their failure to properly investigate any other leads, the fact that the evidence was handled by an unethical detective who was fired for altering dates on warrants, all of that. And he's also a detective who hid evidence in a filing cabinet in his office that wasn't found until two years after the murder. They noted how the police cherry-picked which evidence to test for DNA and which not to use. Sandy's defense claimed that she, quote, got sucked into this by a couple of cowboys in the sheriff's office who came up with some theories and game over. 
And after each side presented closing arguments, the jury went in to deliberation. And when Liz was in the courtroom attending the verdict phase of the trial, she was struggling to read the expressions on the juror's face to try to get an idea of what the outcome was going to be. When they came back, we were allowed to go in there. And yeah, they, you know, some were crying and some just, some wouldn't even look at us. They wouldn't even make contact, eye contact. And I, I knew then that was, it wasn't going to be good. So the jury came back with a verdict. Guilty. Liz and Sandy were floored. Sandy was sentenced to 27 years for the murder of Jim, her husband. And so as you can imagine, devastating. It's just, it's crazy to think that if you fit the bill and they don't feel like doing all the legwork, you can easily go to prison for something that you had absolutely no involvement in. Um, I'm still completely shocked at how, despite having, you know, other DNA there and other fingerprints or other, I know that there was like male DNA found somewhere, um, and yet they still convicted my mom. I, I just, it boggles my mind at how how easily this happened. And I'm sure that there are a lot more people out there that just don't have the same voice um, and they don't have the same platform to say, you know, I should not be in here. I'm innocent. And I know a lot of people say that, but I think that, um, yeah, that this happens much more than we realize. And I've always said, I, I only want justice for my dad. I, I just want answers. And whatever justice for him is, true, absolute justice, will be the right thing for everybody. And um, gosh, I just hope that we're not fighting too much longer for it. So where are things now? Sandy filed an appeal, but her conviction was upheld. But then Sandy's case caught the attention of attorney Kathleen Zellner, who is from Making a Murderer Season 2. She's a big deal. Zellner's reevaluating the case and doing more DNA testing to exonerate Sandy. And Zellner has helped exonerate 19 people who were wrongfully convicted. And she believes fully in Sandy's innocence. So the fact that Kathleen Zellner is helping with Sandy's case now is a relief. And there is hope that Sandy will someday be exonerated. But until then, Sandy remains incarcerated. And it's been a really tough pill to swallow. I think that's the perfect description for it is trying to put all your resources into you know, the one person I have left and trying to make sure that they're okay. You know, I can't even, I have two kids now since this has happened. And there are times where I feel that I'm not actually actively working on the case or working to do something to help my mom. It's just finding the right way to live and finding the balance. And right now I feel like we're just kind of struggling and clawing our way back to some normal semblance of a life. And I don't know if we'll ever get there, but, you know, bringing my mom home and finding out who did this would be an absolute best way to start it. Another travesty in this case is certainly the fact that Liz hasn't even had the opportunity to grieve her father properly because she had to jump into action for her mom immediately. We, we haven't had a chance to mourn. I mean, we had a service on the 29th of December. I mean, I remember going to the store because I needed clothes to wear. I didn't have any anything, like, appropriate. I had just come in my clothes that I had in my bag in England. And 
I remember going through the mall and just like seeing all these people walking by me and thinking like, how can you be shopping and going about your lives? Like, I would just get so angry because all these people could just be fine and my whole world had just been destroyed. And it was just this anger that I felt that, you know, that we had to feel this way and whoever did this was still out there to do this to whoever, whoever else they felt like doing this to. You know, there hasn't been much time to just stop and smell the roses. There's always been something to do or some fight to have. And it's just... I'm, I don't think we can ever actually mourn his loss until until we know who actually did this and my mom is home and the right person is behind bars. Oh, it's so hard for me to talk about my dad. I just wish that he could be here to see my kids because I just know that he would have given them, you know, the sun and moon if they wanted him to. He would have done anything for, for them. And... um it just, it kills me that he's never going to get to see that. And he's never going to get to see who I became or what we've accomplished. And um, I just, and it kills me that he's never going to have another year with my mom. Sandy's conviction was controversial. Her and Jim's family and friends have stood by her through and through and continue to maintain her innocence. So Sandy's conducted just one interview from behind bars, so... Here's Sandy. They got it wrong. They, uh, they got it completely wrong. You say you blacked out at the moment your husband was being murdered. I, I but people watching might think, that sounds so convenient. Yeah, it's not a blackout. I have seizure, seizures. And uh, I had a lump in my head, so I was hit. And then I went into a seizure, more than likely. I mean, no one was there to actually see it, but that's how it felt like when I woke up. Sandra, did you kill your husband? And as always, our no, first-degree guest is always husband. our largest source. No. And you have grandkids. And my grandbabies, yeah. You're missing out on. I know. I know that really hurts me. I, I miss them so much. I mean, I'm just going to keep fighting this until I'm out of here. That's all I can do. want to commend Liz for continuing to fight tirelessly for what she believes in. So if you're as moved by this case and by this story as we are, definitely check out Liz's website, freesandymalgert.com. And there, they're selling some awesome t-shirts that say, in Zellner we trust, free Sandy Melgar. And I'm going to buy one of these. Here, you can also make a donation that will go towards additional DNA testing that could aid in Sandy's exoneration. So once more, Liz, we're thinking about you and we thank you for joining us. If anybody out there has a story they would like to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Please join our Facebook group, search the first degree on your Facebook search bar. We're talking true crime all the time and uh, go grab some merch while you're at it and stick around because we're going to kill some time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close. But not that close.
Rescue Dog Day. Rescue Dog. Rescue Dog Day. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Give me a dog. Sources for today's episode include the Houston Chronicle, ABC News, CBS News, court documents, the free Sandy Melger website. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. Okay, welcome to another episode of Killing Time. You know, I'm really sick of recording distantly from you guys because what has it taken us? Uh, 30 minutes to try to set up our audio? We're doing Killing Time before the actual episode today. And it's been a fucking pain in my ass. You know what? I will say, though, that between all of the eating and drinking that we do normally when we are sitting down and recording together, that usually takes five hours and this takes two. No, it usually takes us at least six to eight hours because we socialize. <laughs> we end up ordering pizza and then we make drinks and then we gossip and we talk about like all the other podcasters. No offense, guys. We talk about everything and we just sort of download on life. Yeah. So it does take us less time now, but at least that also counted as sort of hanging out socializing. with socializing. It was fun. Yes. It was fun no, the way we did it. As I opposed mean, to technical difficulties. I understand what you're saying, Jen. Yeah, you guys are two of my besties and it was an excuse to... I mean, my life used to be so busy that I didn't have time to really hang out with friends. So it was kind of an excuse for us to socialize and hang out while at the same time being productive. Well, Jeff, but that's I why rem- we decided to do a podcast together because we both are workaholics and the only way we'd get to bond as much as we want is if we'd work together. 
That is true. I mean, that's really, we really found the key to life by doing that. But there was a time, there was just like a certain time when we were doing our podcast that number one, they were the longest they've ever been. So the episodes were like an hour and a half long. But then also for some reason, our like procrastination and our hangs and then our drinking habits and then the food, like the whole process took at least six hours for an hour and a half podcast. I knew if I was coming over at like four I wasn't leaving until 11 p.m. <laughs> which is which is 4 a.m. for most people because Jack goes to bed at usually 8, 8 p.m. You guys, can I tell you about a really embarrassing nickname that I've been given during quarantine by my boyfriend, Jared? Yes, please. So as you know, I go to bed extremely early. I don't like... I don't like being out after the sun goes down. I like to be in bed by 10 p.m. And I've been quarantining Even with my quarantine, parents. This is the case. I've been staying up a little bit later. I feel very reckless. Like sometimes I stay up until like 11 p.m. <laughs> but I've been staying with my parents in Orange County. And then Jared's been here. And they collectively love to fucking make fun of me. Like, and so they've been calling me grandma. My mother has been calling me grandma because I like to go to bed at 10 p.m. And then also I've been eating not the best foods that have given me gas, burping gas. And they have called me the nickname of gassy grandma. Ew. (laughs) I hate that that nickname. That is my new nickname. All right. So merch. (laughs) I guess. Who wants to wear that? Gassy grandma merch. You, you'd be surprised. There's some stands I, I out there that don't wear that. I'm mortified, you guys. You know, maybe somebody like really resonates with that. Yeah. By the way, Alexis hates any sort of bodily function or, or anything like that. So you need, well, Alexis, humor. We're all that's not humor. That was a nickname that I've been given against against my will that I don't want to take. But now it is. You know, put you know how me. sometimes you're given a nickname that you don't want and then you just embrace it, like I did with the tank. Like I you <laughs> and Billy, I was like drunk. You guys convinced me to get a tank tattooed on my body, and I'm still wanna do it somehow. <laughs> have we explained to our listeners what the tank is? I can't remember if we have or not. No, but I I'll start. So it originally started because I can drink more than anyone. Anybody. And not really seem drunk at all or act drunk or be drunk, really. I mean, I seem just pretty much fine. Um, In fact, I do my best work under the influence. But anyways, so then it started, the tank started to transcend just this one area in my life, drinking. It started (laughs) to embody all that I am and my perseverance and my uh, sadness that I've overcome and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, all sorts of things. And suddenly, You're it's a bubble. It's, it's a beacon of hope in a dark, dark pandemic world. So I yes. want to get like a little tiny, tiny tank tattooed on my somewhere. <laughs> I love I love the idea of a tiny tank because it kind of feminizes the idea of a very masculine <laughs> nickname of the tank. But no, my favorite flip, thing... Flip it and make it work for me. We'll make it cute. But my favorite thing is you just... Uh, got an amazing opportunity in your professional life. And Jared and I had sent you flowers to congratulate you. And in the note of the flowers, it said, you know, congratulations. We love you so much. We're so, we can't wait to wait to see how far the tank will go. And I, you posted it on Instagram. I reposted it and I had so many questions being like, Ooh, what is the tank shark tank? Did she like, did she sell an invention on shark tank? No, a lot of people who were like, congrats on the tank. I'm like, 
thank you. I do deserve <laughs> congratulations, but they think the tank is the project. But and it's not true it in, a, in a few ways. The Anyways, tank is the project. You know, you're an ongoing me. project. Enough about me. We're going to talk about Jacqueline now because it was her birthday a couple days ago, and we had a very exciting birthday party day. We did. Some of you did. <laughs> Billy, um, Jared, you forgot to invite Billy to the Zoom. I know. Womp okay, womp. so for my birthday, I fucking hate birthdays. I always try to like go to another country for my birthday, but Jared knew how he needed to make it kind of special or else I would spiral into a, a depression. So he set up this amazing emo birthday party with all of my friends. Everybody dressed up and made their Zoom pictures pictures of me and it was so cute all of my best friends but then he failed to invite billy <laughs> oh man so and the weird thing is is that i sort of knew that it was happening but i didn't really know it was happening but i oh. uh, i was i was dressed up in all of my emo glory with my my eyeliner and everything and my hair swooped over one eye just alone in my house with a single black balloon <laughs> <laughs> Billy, you could do such a good emo too. How long is your hair right now? Can it fit over your eye? It probably could. I'll send you pictures of when my hair was over my eye before emo was a thing. And uh and before pretty... you were born? Was it before, yeah, before you were you born? Before you were born, exactly. Um it was right about the time that actually it was before Jack was born, yeah. <laughs> was it 86? Lady. It was 80. Yeah. I was born in no, 86. 87. 87. So Jack was, was born, so. depending on what month. All right. I might have been a fetus, but. Sorry, Jack. She yeah. loves to drive home that I'm like six months older, but I'm not going to let it fly this time. <laughs> Jack was alive. <laughs> <laughs> barely. Barely. Maybe not. I was only alive half you of were a glimmer. You were a glimmer in May's eye. That's right. That's right. <laughs> glimmer. And, you know, you were like a vodka soda. I was at a, a bar. vodka soda. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, Billy, um, I expect, you know, I don't know, maybe next time we record the podcast, maybe dress up in yes. some sort of a costume. Mm hmm. All right. Your background. I don't know. I, some eyeliner I, would be nice. Yes. You know what? I will welcome you to the Black Parade. Oh, nice. My Chemical Romance lyrics. Mm -hmm. But I, I was offended, but now knowing that you weren't invited, I'm yes. almost a little bit pissed at Jared for not inviting you. Well, what a dick. I knew, I knew the group chat I was in, and it was all the gals, but then yes. when it got expanded to Kelty and to Mary and people that weren't in this chat, I was like, oh, I didn't know we could extend because the chat name was called Jack's Ema Birthday. We later added you to it. Yes, I haven't responded to one thing in that chat, but, um, you know, Billy, I didn't know that anyone else was invited outside of the chat, but anyways, well, you know what? I will say that Lex, the most emo thing I could have done was stay at home and just cried in your room and by just yourself cried in my room by myself in because the you weren't invited. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, it really That's the snowballed. true emo moment. So, so I was more emo than anybody else on that zoom call. So in conclusion, you gave me the best gift that anybody could get. Hell yeah. By being exactly. emo alone. Exactly. And crying mm -hmm. by yourself. Well, thank you for yeah. your gift, Billy. Mm -hmm. What was the best thing that um happened on your birthday, Jack? Um, I mean, that was pretty amazing. You know, I've been very emotionally fragile through this whole experience and I really miss other people. So that was so sweet seeing all of my friends do such a wonderful gesture that I just couldn't stop crying, even though I was really happy, but sad at the same time. Um, I mean, other than that, you know, uh, Jared and I did some line dancing at night. That was really great. All I want fun. 
is to convince him to do line dancing with me. And like I said, he's a really good line dancer and dancer in general. And I'm very shocked because he's very dense and like, he seems like gravity is holding his body down. He'd sink right to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> right to the bottom of the ocean. He would be an anchor. Just like He's like a diving bell. You know, like those fucking those yes. like armor suits. He's just that. That would sink mm-hmm. to the bottom. He's very dense. Like he's, he's like, a, 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 he's, he's stocky, but he's thin-ish. You know, his build is, no, but he's fat on him. Dense. He's like a tube steak that's heavy. <laughs> Too very made of steel. You know what's great is that Jared has to, you know, sort of put this this episode together and listen to this. And there's nothing he can do about it. Actually, he could probably edit it out, but he's he's not going to. My my favorite part about Jared's body is that um, I got this pool, like a blow up pool, but the pool is just this, it's this rubber and it fills up with the water like there you don't blow the actual pool up but you can smack the pool and it's this like big dense like it's just this like smack and you have to do it and i've realized that when i smack his belly it's the same <laughs> dense irresistible smack that you get Does he so like that's my that? favorite does he like when you do that um i don't think he did it first but i think now he's coming around to it because slapping I'm actually into it. I'm I'm slap I'm slapping I'm slapping the base. All right. Well, Billy, do you have anything to add? Because otherwise <laughs> we might call it. No, I think we need to call it. Okay, time it at eleven twenty two. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.